0: Philip Bourdin, who was and has been for decades, a very distinguished businessman in France and beyond, former president of Club Med and and Euro Disney, said to me at a certain point, just remember, hire the strongest number two you can ever find. Otherwise, you'll get stuck in the same position you've always been in. So from a business standpoint, hire somebody who is stronger than you are anytime that you can.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital worlds. Great Business Minds is brought to you by Portman Partners, the premier executive search firm for the digital infrastructure industry. With 50 plus years of experience, no other firm can match their knowledge, discretion and connections with the best top-level talent in the sector. So are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Contact Portman Partners today. And this week we are joined by one of the industry's major entrepreneurs with more than 30 years of experience in international development and investment. Three times, Bernd Murphy brought US concepts to Europe and grew startup companies into 1 billion US dollar plus global enterprises. After developing high-end mixed-use projects in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s and 90s, Bern co-founded BBA MacArthur Glen, the company that imported the designer outlet concept to the UK and Europe. After opening the company's Paris office in 1992, he led its expansion across Europe, resulting in more than 1 billion U.S. dollars in sales. He then developed private residence clubs, starting with restoring Palazzo Tornabuoni, a 15th-century Medici palazzo in Florence, Italy. The Palazzo underwent a 250 million US dollars redevelopment and is now managed by the Four Seasons. In 2010, the project won the Wurman Land Institute's prestigious award of excellence for EMEA. Fast forwarding to today, Bern has just sold Digiplex, a major sustainable data center operator in the Nordics, which he co-founded with Bill Coney, the co-founder of the Carlyle Group. Bern also owns and runs Sky Group Partners, which is a real estate development and investment company. Beyond the business world, Bern is also an award-winning author with his book, Le Dille, winning the Axiom Gold Medal Award for Best Memoir. After living in Europe for 13 years, Bern now resides in the Washington, D.C. area, where he joins me from at this time. Uh, Bern, welcome to the Great Business Minds podcast. I think the last time I saw you was in Oslo in 2017. Uh, We were on the 20th something floor of the the hotel downtown. Um, One of the events in the industry that we've missed for, for the last two years. Um, a lot to talk about the Nordics data centers, because um, what you've done over the years has been incredibly amazing to watch. Uh, but before we get into the Nordics and the data center industry and just infrastructure as a whole, tell us tell us your life story. How did you get into infrastructure? Um, and I understand that you didn't start with data centers, it was a journey into the sector. Um, so tell us how you, you got into infrastructure over the years. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled
0: to be here. Uh, and thank you for your questions. Um, I tend to think of anyone's career as a journey and the career is a continuation of earlier chapters of the same journey. So I'm used to looking backwards. I hadn't thought about it at the time of, of taking journeys and letting some elements evolve into others. For example, I graduated from university. I thought I was gonna be going to Wall Street and instead I concluded I wanted to go for a long sail. So I started in Boston, Massachusetts and I sailed to Auckland, New Zealand as slowly as possible, going through as many archipelagos uh, and the Panama Canal as possible. And along the way, I discovered the journey was as exciting as the arrival and the final destination. And when I look back on my career, um, one thing has led to another to another, and there's been this constant evolution. And so I'm a believer in chapters. Um, After graduate school, in business, I was in the um, property development world around Washington, D.C., very complex downtown projects, I am pay designed, historic preservation, uh, a lot of trophy buildings. And then we had in America what was called the SNL banking crisis. And uh, that shut down all urban development combined with a bad economy. And I had to find something else to do somewhere else. And uh, from the origin of the idea of taking outlet centers and the outlet shopping concept to Europe, to finding myself in a Paris hotel room, building up a company was less than 30 days um, with my wife and one uh, one year old baby still at home in America. Mm And all of a sudden, I was starting up a company in Paris, which I'd never done before. and I hadn't spoken French in seven years since leaving Tahiti on a sailboat. It's not the easiest country to start either. <laughs> very difficult country. So one thing leads to another. And that was the beginning of 30 years of being focused uh, in Europe uh, and importing three different concepts from America to Europe. That's the background.
1: Yeah, no, I love it. And uh, I guess it's what inspired the book that you you have previously mentioned, uh, Le Deal. Um, so this American, young American entrepreneur comes into Paris and starts a, a business from his hotel room, um, which is quite a fascinating story. Um, so we went from outlets to private residency clubs um, and then data centers. Um, I don't know if you want to touch too much more, much more on the outlets and the privacy re- residency clubs, uh, but on the data center side, you found a tremendous gap um or not even a ga- i don't, don't even know if you can call it the gap at the time because it was so ahead of the time it was probably not even a gap yet <laughs> um but you went for the nordics and you started in 2001 in the middle of what most people i mean the world was ending um for people that were working in the internet space with the dot-com bubble so how did it come about like how did you get into into that space how did you envision that um because i mean the nordics nordics is also a synonym of green energy Um, So that alone is also not a second step.
0: It is. So I had these outlets that all across Europe when the internet arrived on the European shores and I was studying the internet, wondering how I could apply it to shopping. And I thought I could distribute the shopping out the back doors of what was then about 1,500 outlet stores in, in seven different countries. And I concluded that that was not going to work, fortunately. So then I said, where do I find this new virtual world intersecting the property world and the answer was data centers or uh, carrier hotels they were known then and then i said where do i want to go with this data center concept uh, because dot com was at a fever pitch but just starting to crack when i was studying it and dot com became of course the disastrous dot bomb dollars of capital value was wiped out in a few months um and i I decided to start in Norway because they had hydroelectric power, all green. It was very, very inexpensive and power being the single largest line item available variable and running a data center for your customers. And um, I'd been operating all across Europe at that point. I didn't know much about the Nordics, but what I knew I liked. So I went to be the green provider in Norway in 2001, I actually started up in 2000 to get it going. Um, And that was our niche. And it was, and I only looked at the Nordics. I was happy with the Nordics throughout. And eventually when what became known as hyperscalers entered the market, they were desperate for green power. And they were desperate for inexpensive power and they needed global deployment. So what seemed like a small little geographic niche actually was strategically very important on a global basis.
1: Hmm. And I I think another huge lesson that we can take from, from what you've done in the Nordics is, you kept focused on one thing um, instead of going and trying to embrace everything else. Because, I mean, again, you're going to the market so early, you could easily have gone into Germany and France and the UK and tried to do everything. Um, and it, you probably would have worked, but um, it's, I think that alone is quite, quite a lesson in itself. Do you think sometimes people take too much um, instead of just keeping their mind focused on one oh. side of the business? If you're an entrepreneur and you're building a
0: platform, that is the most usual cardinal sin which is committed, expanding too fast into too many different places, uh, whether it's geographic uh, markets or culturally different markets. um, Working capital is extremely important in a capital intensive sector like data centers. Mm. When you're starting up, uh, because that first round of capital is very expensive and very scarce and you have to make it right. So I chose a, I knew I was going to have first mover advantage coming out of the crisis of the data center meltdown. I knew I could be regionally dominant if I stuck to my knitting, as we say, stay focused. And I, and I just, I didn't know, but I just believed in my heart that green power and very inexpensive green power, sustainable power was going to be really important. And I just kept chipping away at it, chipping away at it.
1: So that sounds amazing. Uh, we'll get into the um, the meeting and greeting of um, of Digiplex um and the Nordic data center market in the second part of the podcast. But you mentioned that you're a uh, believer in chapters. One of the biggest chapters in any company is culture. Um, it's it's people, it's talent. Um, how I mean, what's your take on company culture? Um, and how would you kind of rate it today if you if, if there's a way to rate it? Like are company is behaving properly and behaving well in the sense that they are creating um, a good cor- corporate framework for their employees to to really grow and expand their knowledge um, and push the market ahead and um, I'll, I'll let you answer that first and then we'll go into, into the rest around company culture. Digiplex
0: is my fourth platform that I joined, I started, launched from scratch or I joined very early on and grew large. And uh, by the second one, I guess it became obvious to me that startup companies have a huge advantage over established companies that they can create their own culture. And the direct answer to your question is culture is the number one most important managerial concern and tool available to the founders today. The younger generation of millennials and Gen Z and, and that whole scale, Uh, of ages in there, they want uh, where they work and and the atmosphere of where they work and people with whom they work and especially the the boss above them and above that person are extremely important. More than salary over time, more than their bonus over time. Those are very important. But um, 80% of the people who leave the company leave because of the boss on top of them, not because of the company. They don't like the atmosphere of working for that person at that time and they don't see it changing. If you can establish a culture that is tied to beliefs and mission, which together equal purpose, if you can give people who are working there a sense of purpose that is greater than their paycheck, and then you can have buy-in amongst the senior management team who will then bring their respective teams on board, then you have established a culture which begins a virtuous circle. Everybody believes in the same culture, in the same principles, and in our case, we had a mission. We wanted to be. We wanted to bring green power to the industry. It was much more environmentally friendly. It was much less expensive. If you took one hundred megawatts over a twenty-year useful life of a data center, like the hyperscalers do, it was one point three billion dollars of savings to go to Norway versus Germany or the UK right off the bat. And then we had ambient cold air outside, which is another twenty-five percent or two hundred fifty million in savings. So we believed in it for the for our customers, we believed in it for the townships, we believed in it for the environment. And when you have that kind of belief and then your people go home and they explain to the kids around the dining room table, I'm helping uh, with the climate problem that we all change, and we're building a great company, everybody uh, everybody wins by that.
1: It builds a positive cycle of uh, productivity and happiness as well. Um, and uh, And then the people who work there, then they recruit people who they believe will have the same outlook
0: on the mission. They will recruit people they wanna work with and all of a sudden you have the most important element to keep this all together is trust. And if you can trust your teammates that that's what we're working for, that's our mission, then uh, is possible. And, and it lightens the load of the founder, uh, owner, CEO, dramatically when everyone is growing in the same cadence to the same destination at the same time.
1: And I think it's a testament as well to the company, to the company if employees then really build um, their knowledge and their skills. And even if they go away and do something else um, that's completely successful, it really is a testament to what that company does and how the company gets their people to work together. Um, But on that note, we often we do see, um, especially with the the older generations, we often do see some people getting a bit scared um, that someone skilled and usually younger will take over their job. Um, how, what would you say to those people?
0: Have more confidence in yourself. I think it's—I don't want to say it's re, a ridiculous paradigm because I see it so often that it's—it's um, it's a common affliction. If you are so concerned about the person underneath you taking your job, then you're spending—you're not spending enough time bringing your job to the next level or your company to the next level uh, and your whole team to the next level, and you're not going to move forward. You're going to get stuck in that same job. And the person who's underneath you eventually gets frustrated, they're going to leave and then you're really stuck. So I always say hire somebody that you know can replace you. Otherwise, you're going to stay in that same place for a long time and yourself,
1: uh, you'll be creating your own unhappiness. Which would be very damaging um, to the personal and the personal side of that individual. Um, And then, of course, it will cascade down to the business very quickly. Yes um what would you say on those kind of pages what would you say it's something that's non-negotiable for you when it comes to doing business um what's one thing that you would not open hand off
0: ethics very simple
1: um once you
0: start fiddling around with the definition of ethics or your personal principles it's a slippery slope and you don't know where it's gonna lead so uh a, a very short reference to a much longer story, a story that is captured um, in the book La Deal uh, that you mentioned at the outset. Three weeks before the big zoning vote for my first project in France, um, and that project had to receive approval because every, I bet the farm on it and I had to get that project up and going, the mayor of an adjoining town sent an emissary over and said, I know you need this vote passed, I know I can block you. And I will do so unless I get uh, 20 million French francs in a bank account before the vote, which was at the time about uh, $6 million, something of that order. And I didn't have $6 million and the company didn't have $6 million. Um, And maybe I could negotiate it down to $1 million or something. Um, But my reaction was um, when they came and told me that, um, I screamed at them so loudly, I chased them out of my office um, and I was very, very upset that I will never do that. Uh, the problem was I chased him out of the office, but the, but they had the ability to still block my project. And so I was not going to give in. I was not going to compromise the front. Uh, and we did a charrette for three days and three nights and we redesigned the whole project and came up with an entrance on the other side of the site. So I didn't need his land or his approval. And we went on from there can't compromise the basic principles or the whole thing, the whole enterprise is
1: at jeopardy. I love that. And and also the biggest mistake we're doing something like that would have been opening a door um to more exceptions and more things in the future. It we'll would just not stop. Um I mean, so well I don't know if well done is the right way well, well done for not I mean, having given in special especially, especially I, mean, I mean the thing is it's your first project as well. It would have been so easy. Um of course the money was one issue but if you have the money it could have been so easy to just go right take your money, let's approve this, let's go. Um, it's the first project, we want everything to go well. So it takes a grown-up to make that kind of decision.
0: Well, and they, you know, the argument could be, I was playing by a very state American rules in the country where maybe those rules aren't their rules. So, you know, when in Rome do as the Romans? Well, I,
1: I, oh, okay. I didn't, I can't,
0: and I don't, so
1: there we go. You know, you've got to get it sometimes play the stigma as well and try to change things a little bit. <laughs> uh, but you kind of answered my next question as well, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, tell us about one time when things have gone wrong, like really wrong. It can be, it can be anything. Something that has gone really wrong, but then through positivity and um, experience or learning on the job, something really bad you've transformed into something good um, that our listeners can take um, as a way of thinking well, So that,
0: I just gave you one example where it was, yep. uh, everything was uh, on the table, um, about to be lost if I couldn't figure out a solution, but I was not going to go down that path. But a, on a more practical uh, day-to-day workmanship basis, um, I was developing a site in Washington, D.C. It was a full city block. It was a $250 million uh, com- uh, project that combined an old historic Landmark inside and outside with a brand new construction. I am paying office on the new construction. And we were building the garage three levels underground. And in the middle of it, the market shifted. And rents were going up so much that finally the law firms in Washington, D.C., the primary market said that we came for this anymore. And some people were offering them underground conference facilities where they charge them half the rent. And if they could take a third of their space and pay half the rent on it. The problem was we had to design that in, and we were under construction, and we were just about at the bottom of the hole when it became clear that would be a competitive advantage if we could offer it. We, we stopped construction. We didn't, uh, we didn't exactly have everyone's green light to stop construction, including bankers and whatnot, but we did have a big enough contingency, I felt, that I could do everything within the contingency change the design, go 36 inches deeper, build out a conference facility, and still finish the project within the timeframe of which I've been allocated by partners and bankers and everybody. And we announced that to the market when we were halfway through the construction. And as a consequence, landed a customer uh, who took 60% of the building because we had that underground space. Um, And we had two Metro stops within a block. We didn't need all that extra parking. And it was a win-win-win for everybody but it was a rather dramatic uh, pivot at the time. Um, and one of the outcomes of it was we became known as a, a very innovative company um, who uh, takes, who can make tough decisions and still execute and deliver for their customers and their investors and the bank.
1: How would you classify your risk-taking? Are you, do you like high risks or your average? Um, People think I take
0: huge risks, that my whole career has just been one big, long risk taking extravaganza, uh, <laughs> and I don't look at it that way. I know there's a lot of risk in the process of development or taking a new concept, introducing it into new markets, but only take on one or two risks. Italian sausage, i say, I slice off one little piece of it at a time, That's it's so thin, you can almost look through, and I get that risk, and I nail it to the ground before moving on. to the next. So I don't buy land with options uh, and I have given myself enough time to get zoning approvals and construction pricing, et cetera, et cetera. I don't buy land and put it in my pocket and take the risk on 25 or $50 million worth of land uh, without having approvals. I don't start construction unless I've got enough pre-leasing or pre-sales and et cetera. Now, people still think what I do is very risky, but I do break it down into phases and in all, and it looks like you're taking on construction. It looks like you're design. Everything all comes down to people. And that's why if you have the right culture, they attract the right people with the right character. Character is different than talent. You will get the right talent and you'll reach your objectives. If you start with, work with, and end with people.
1: It always comes down to people. Um that reduces how, the risk. Yeah. 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 Uh, if there was one thing you would have done differently over the last 20 years, what would that be? Uh, I, I wouldn't change anything.
0: It, it worked out well, that. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> uh, uh, it was extremely hard work. It, at times, it was, uh, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting up new platforms, especially a series of them, it can get lonely out there, because you're the only one that has the vision for a while. Um, and it can be very tough as the economic cycles come, though, and, and you may be caught in the middle. So I wouldn't have changed anything were I to do it all over again. I don't think I'd spend 30 years outside my home. country. You know, my career is just over 35 years long. So five, six, six of it have been outside my home country. Um, it's Intellectually fascinating, great for the family. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, and you get first mover advantage by being in a foreign country, very successful. Um, but your home country is your home
1: country and it's a great place to be always feels nice to go back home um and before we we break for a quick um for a quick break um is it easy to because you like sailing is it easy to to do sailing or to to manage a data center business and deal with all these mayors and legal people and and all that you know i used
0: to race every wednesday night with an elderly gentleman who was a doctor and uh he said you know burn I want to be I want to lead a good Christian life so that when I die and go to heaven, I can be on a broad reach sailing from now till eternity. So when you <laughs> get on a broad reach with the right wind and the right boat and the right flag, there's nothing easier or more beautiful than that. So mm-hmm. that may be easier, but it you don't get it all the time. You go through a lot of storms to get to those broad reach. Yeah.
1: yeah. Just like in business as well. Um, but well, this is the first part of our chats. Um, before we continue, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Portman Partners. Are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Portman Partners is a unique international executive search firm dedicated to finding the leaders for the digital infrastructure industry. Led by Portman founder and senior partner Peter Hannaford and chairman David Pye, Portman works with clients around the world in the internet and cloud infrastructure sector. Portman has a vast network of contacts around the globe and has placed senior leaders at many of the world's most prestigious organizations in the business. From investors to hyperscale operators, regional collars, designers, construction firms and plant and equipment manufacturers, Portman has the talent and experience required to fill a wide range of C-level and leadership positions. No other executive search firms specializing in the digital infrastructure sectors can match Portman's knowledge industry expertise or the worldwide connections needed to conduct efficient and confidential searches that will result in successful placements. If you want to be at the top of your sector, get in touch with Portman, the best in theirs. To learn more and connect with Portman via their website, visit www.portmanpartners.com. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds Podcast episode with Bern Murphy. Um, Bern, in the first part, we, we discussed a lot about your, your life journey, the, the different chapters of a business. Um, we, we established that people are the most important thing um, when it comes to, to running a business and growing and expanding a business. Uh, but now let's talk about the business. So the industry, um, the data center space. How would you describe data centers today? What would you say is the biggest disruption um, there's so much fresh capital um, coming into this space nowadays. Um, what's your view? Well, the,
0: there's a huge flow of fresh capital coming in because there remains a huge demand on a global basis. And uh, though you would think that Northern Virginia, the number one uh, aspen Virginia um, data center market in the world, that must be mature, that's certainly uh, maxed out and, and the industry is moving on. It's just not the case. There's more demand for for that market, just like there is for Frankfurt, London and other key markets, Amsterdam, um, than ever before. And I was speaking with probably the largest single investor in the sector on a global basis last week. And that person, I said to them, uh, gee, um, does it look like with interest rates rising, with costs rising, with so many things rising, are your yields going down? Or are you not making your pro forma yields? And the response was, the yields are coming in lower than we had projected, but the volume is coming in so much higher that they're very, very happy The gross profit overall is ahead of what they projected. And uh, so that's, that's very attractive. Um, the demand is there. If you were to put it in an American metaphor of a baseball game where we have nine innings and I was on a global forum call last week um, with people from all around the world the CEOs and I said, what inning would we be in? And the consensus was bottom of the third, top of the fourth inning and one person said, this is a game with unlimited innings. It's just it's just going on and on and on. So there's a huge amount of opportunity and it's coming back to your question. What do I think is the biggest disruption today? Well, consolidation is, is obviously continuing on a global basis on a bigger scale basis with 10, 11, Billion dollar acquisitions 15 billion dollar take private transactions, and that's going to continue. So the the entrepreneur who's started up a company uh, like I did in a regional basis, um, you have to get to a bigger platform or you won't be competitive. Why? Because the very large companies have more leverage in the capital markets. They can get capital for less expensive terms. They can uh, pre-book. Um, Slots in the manufacturing line with the supply chain so they don't have any disruption because they ship it anywhere in the world. And they have purchasing power uh, on the pricing yeah. of, of that supply chain. If you are a regional player that cannot tap into that, eventually the global players come into your region and the dynamic changes. And that's, those three reasons are why it became apparent to me it was time for Digiplex to join a global platform mm-hmm. and not remain independent okay. on an, a regional platform.
1: No, I mean, that transaction was quite interesting. Um, I mean, rumors started in 2018, 19. I remember writing something back then, Um, so I, wish I was very happy. And I finished quite like it was about 11.30 um, at night. And then I crossed the Thames in London just to go to, to have a drink with a friend. And I said, oh, I'm really excited about this story. But then it took two years to come out. <laughs> so I was like, oh, God. <laughs> so, well, thank you for making my readers wait for 24 months.
0: <laughs> but, well, you were right, though. <laughs> and actually, there's a lesson there. We did okay. go to the market. We, had, we did the full in 2018. Mm-hmm. We did the full process with investment bankers. We went from uh, you know, 15 or 18 or 20 bidders, and we were down to very, very few. And my partner and I, Bill Conway, who's co founder of the Carlisle Group, we pulled the deal very, very late in the process, which made some people uh, rather unhappy because demand was shooting up so fast, so high from the hyperscalers who desperately, that was the moment that we went big time on the green power to Silicon Valley. And in two and a half years, when I went back to market, uh, the the Delta was dramatic in the size of the company. So it was the right thing at the right time. Uh, And I'm sorry, your readers had to wait.
1: (laughs) It's okay, I'm sure they don't mind. I was actually just gonna say, because I mean, 2018 and then this closed last year, um, of course, there was the the, the whole COVID pandemic thing. Um, did that have any impact? Like, did they bring the, the, the price of the deal up? Like, was there any impact from the pandemic?
0: Well, uh, uh, the pandemic was a good thing for us. It mm-hmm. was a good thing for the industry because obviously everybody went to Zoom, everybody went to fiber optics, everybody, uh, you know, the whole infrastructure had to be cranked up. So demand for us went way up. Um, And at the same time, demand for green power, for sustainable power went way up. And so the two and a half years between when we pulled the deal and when when we went back in the market, um, there was a dramatic difference in the size of the company and um, multiples that also got up in the meantime, because uh, the whole industry was under much more of a spotlight. So that was a a good, good win-win-win story, including for our customers um, as, as well.
1: So in other words, you don't regret not selling it in 2018, but in 2021. Not for a nanosecond. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but how would you say So how would you say that the acquisition of Digiplex in the Nordics kind of positions all those trends that we talked about um, already um, in the Nordic space? So all these investors coming in. So IPI partners got Digiplex, um, Azraeli got uh, Green Mountain in Norway as well. Um, there's, there's all this new type of investor coming in. So how would you say that DigiPlex kind of reflects, um, what's going on in the market? Um, also, this will have been an acquisition that would have pushed the market forward because it was a very big acquisition.
0: Um, DigiPlex because DigiPlex was the market leader by 2X or 2.5X in that region. When we went to market and sold and we did it very quietly and very fast. So it surprised a lot of people then. Uh, I knew it, it was going to happen, but it then happened even faster than I expected. Then MA was going to run throughout that region because now there was a super player there, and you had the others had to respond or they would go out of business when um, they would be weakened in their eventual MA. So the obvious thing happened every company in the Nordics then went through a sale process. I just was amazed at how fast it went through the sale process. Uh, and, and scale matters, and scale matters a lot. Um, and you've seen that same pattern now repeat itself in every market around the world, digital realty from Teraco down south uh, southern Africa, uh, to the MA um, in, in the take private scenarios, the 10 and $15 billion scenarios, it's all driven by the same three macro drivers I mentioned earlier on scalability and what it means for cost and for the customer in the, in the end of it.
1: Would a place like Africa be something you'll be interested in? Like a really, really frontier emerging market? I'm um, really going full in on something. You, you, you go from the Nordics, super, I mean, I'm going to say super safe. I'm going to say safe, established into something completely new. Would you Would you do that? Well, at
0: the time, um, i uh, that's the type of thing I would do. Yes. Yeah. A- am I doing it? Um, not right now. Have I had a lot of requests to please go look at it? Yes, I have. Um, but this is, as I mentioned earlier, this is my fourth platform. I'm not seeking to go to wilder uh, frontiers for my fifth platform. Um, <laughs> uh, there's there, this industry is now also headed in not just to consolidation but segmentation. So even within the very basic, by that I mean internet inter- infrastructure in general, with the towers, the fiber, the data centers, the landing stations, everything is going to head towards more segmentation now. So instead of having this concept of this is a hyperscale data center, you may have data centers that specialize vertically, finance, industry, or healthcare, or automotive, or a combination of them. You may have uh, those who, like Atlas and, and Yastroshi only do edge. You could also only do micro. You could also do a sort of combination of a micro data center with towers. So new concepts uh, will be emerging, which are... Elements of uh, the larger, broader concept, but more focused, and I think there will be a lot of that coming on. Mm,
1: okay, I mean, you have just opened a Pandora box, but I'm I'm going to let you talk as much as you can now. What what's your fifth platform? What's the new business model? Because you you still have um, uh, Kitebrook, um, which is starting in 2000 as well, which was kind of the the, the vehicle that brought out um, things like Digiplex. Um, and I kind of guess that whatever comes next is going to come out of kite, kite Brook as well. Um, so like I mean, can you lift the veil? How much can you say, how much can you talk at this stage about what's coming? Yeah, I can lift the veil a little bit. I'll tell you that on June 17th is the start of
0: the new nautical miles. That's the next thing that's coming
1: uh,
0: with my daughter and friends and family. In terms of on the business side, what's coming. I'm looking at so many different things that uh, I would be leading your listeners astray if I told them exactly what's going on because I don't know exactly what's going but it'll be interesting, I promise.
1: Okay. Um, let me just go a little bit back in our conversation about the innings and the baseball game and all that and the way the market is going to the infinite opportunities. There's always that conversation in the corridors of a bubble. So another dot-com bubble. What's your take on that? Like, do you think, it's something visible. It's the world is so dependent on this infrastructure. Is even likely to ever happen um, a bubble?
0: When people use the word bubble in the macroeconomic sense or in the capital markets sense, it implies something that's going to explode, like mm-hmm. dot com became dot bomb I mentioned earlier, um, or the tulip crisis in Dutch history. Um, I don't think you'll see an explosion. You've already seen the beginning of a correction. Uh, Some of the uh, biggest publicly quoted uh, firms have had their share price retreat 25, 27 percent in the last three months. That's a correction. Do I I think they're oversold? Um, uh, Will they snap right back to where they were? Not in the next couple of months. Will they get back up there? Yes, because the macro drivers that are behind this, the digitalization of the entire economy, not just the business sense, but the socialization sense, personal sense, individual, collective, it's all digital. And it all has to go through data centers of one type or another. And that uh, we're still early in the game for that. Mm-hmm. So when you do, when people do see these corrections, but not above all the way bursting, um, in one sense, you could say, oh, I'm an individual investor. And that may be a good time to invest. In another sense, um, it's time to um, double down i believe on the by the very strong companies they know they've got a back order a uh, booked uh, deal they know their customers appetite it's a good time to expand hmm. not retreat hmm.
1: very interesting um i kind of want to ask what's your view and i promise this is the last hard question i'll ask you um, what's your view? Because of course, there's a lot of consolidation, a lot of big companies are being acquired, we've seen Traction a few years ago, we've seen DigiPlex, um, we've seen Stack, we've seen Switch, we've seen Cyrus One, CoreSight, you name it. Um, but what about the, the two big dogs? What about Equinix and Digital Realty? Can we see them in the next five, 10 years being acquired by someone? Would you even envision that kind of deal?
0: Uh, I'm not sure I would use acquired by, hmm. as you just did in the traditional sense. a bigger uh, I, I would ask a different question. Could they take on a different format or a different structure than they currently have? Yes. Is a REIT format today um, the appropriate structure for them or might it be the appropriate structure for them tomorrow? There's an argument where the REIT structure is that the industry is outgrowing that structure, which is why a couple of deals went private and they're gonna come back out and go public again. At some point, will they go on the stock market, or will they go through a, uh, I mean a corporate structuring or a REIT structure to be determined? At the current moment, when you have a high interest rate environment, the REIT structure has very strong advantages. Once this high interest rate environment dissipates, then that, that question is up for debate. Just because they're the two largest ones doesn't mean that they will stay in that same uh, relative position in the same format and structure as they're currently in. This element of our world economy um,
1: is too dynamic to predict that. Mm-hmm. Which is also what makes this such an exciting space to be in. Um and Vern, to to round up our conversation, um, I always ask these last two questions to everyone that comes on the show. So what's the 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 best and worst advice you've ever received in your life?
0: Uh, uh, I grew up in a what is perceived to be a large family. There were five kids. Um, I know a lot of families that were larger, Uh, but we grew up around a dining room table every evening with the parents. uh, Everybody had to clean the dishes, cut the lawn, shovel the snow. Everybody was part of a team. So um, what the the greatest life lessons I learned are from around my own dining room table growing up, not necessarily out in the business world or the academic world. But in the context of this particular uh, session, which is more corporate, I'd say, um, Philip who who is is and has been for decades, a very distinguished businessman in France and beyond former president of Club Med and, and Euro Disney, said to me at a certain point, just remember, hire the strongest number two you can ever find. Otherwise you'll get stuck in the same position you've always been in. So from a business standpoint, hire somebody who is stronger than you are anytime that you can. Um, from a personal standpoint, um, I guess I would sum it up, uh, uh, my reflection would be different. Instead of advice, I'd say, wh- what's sort of my favorite quote and, uh, or a piece of advice? And I'd say, act with integrity, leave a legacy, laugh a lot.
1: Hmm. I like that. Sure. And I think you've got like a name of a new book <laughs> there as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> But last one, what's your favorite quote by who and why?
0: Act with integrity, leave a legacy, laugh
1: a lot. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Bern Murphy, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure speaking to you after all these years and, and seeing what you've been up to. Um, and that you've been keeping well as well uh, over the last two and a half years with COVID. Um, it's always a pleasure. I can't wait to see you face-to-face at some point, either this year or next year. I'm sure we'll make that happen at some thank point. You very much. I <laughs> appreciate it. Take care. Good Thanks luck. so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Thank you again to our sponsor, Portman Partners, the leading executive search firm for the digital infrastructure sector. Portman finds the talent you need to protect and enrich your assets. They get it right the first time, every time. Do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds Podcast. See you then.